Well, I hope you guys are having a good week. Thanks for making Wednesday night um, a part of your week, something that uh, I just really look forward to every week. Thankful for uh, Pastor Donnie stepping in and um, teaching last week. Uh, welcome to all of our online people who are, who are watching online. We have a number of people who watch on Facebook and that sort of thing. So um, recognizing that we're a little bit larger crew than what we just feel like right here. So we're doing, as I mentioned, um, series, Jesus Behaving Badly, and the goal of it really is to um, explore some passages in the Gospels where we see Jesus um, doing things, saying things that cause us to scratch our head, be puzzled, um, maybe be bothered (laughs) at a certain level, But, but I would suggest it's oftentimes those passages that I tend to neglect because I don't know what to do with them, or I'm like uncomfortable with them, or I'm just like, this is strange. I, I don't really know what to say or think about it. I, I like the safe passages, like the ones that I've just you know, heard a hundred times. And so kind of let's pick some things that are either weird, strange, hard to understand or whatever, and maybe at the end of the day, we'll have a more full-orbed picture of our Savior. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the goal of this series. And tonight we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 19, and specifically this uh, encounter, this exchange that Jesus has with some of his uh, religious contemporaries, and um, he's asked about divorce. Isn't that a fun topic to talk about in a midweek service? I was talking to our band earlier, and I was like, I think it's a practical and meaningful topic, but it's not a whole lot of fun or anything like that. Um, It is a serious, it's, it's, it's kind of a heavy topic at times, right? Um, but it's practical, it's real, and Scripture speaks to real life. And so we want to look at that. I wonder if I were to ask you, if I were to say, what do you think Jesus thinks about divorce? I wonder what you would say. Or if I said, what do you think the Bible teaches about divorce, about remarriage? I wonder what you think. (laughs) I would be curious to know. How have you formulated what you've come across in Scripture into anything coherent to say this is, you know, the Bible's teaching on divorce and remarriage. And so we're going to land on some comments that Jesus makes in Matthew 19 here. Um, Because, and again, this is kind of a behaving badly, because based on what you think about what Jesus teaches, it's very possible. um, In fact, I've known people who have sort of said this because they think, well, this, you know, this must mean that based on what Jesus allowed for, for divorce, um, gosh, marital abuse and other things, I guess Jesus didn't have a whole lot to say about that. Or he actually allowed us, allowed something that would um, allow that to happen, which throws up some big question marks in our minds about the goodness of Jesus for me. (laughs) If, if he's saying, no, you need to stay in a situation in which maybe you're in danger or something, is that, what, what do we think about it? So what we're going to do, like I said, we're going to land in Matthew 19. We have to backfill a lot <laughs> before we get there because this passage, I would suggest is maybe one of the most widely misunderstood passages in the gospel. Um, we have to backfill a lot because there's so much going on that the, the readers and the listeners there, they just took a lot of stuff for granted because they were there. You know what I mean by that? They just assume so much stuff. So when things are said, I'm not necessarily assuming all of those things. And so we want to kind of 
backfill. And then one last kind of note before we jump in here. Um, this is a sensitive subject for a lot of people, right? Um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I, I, I'd be surprised if anyone in this auditorium wouldn't say, oh yeah, divorce has happened somewhere in my family. If it's not immediate, it's at least like one sphere removed. So all of us are, are, are impacted at one level or another. And oftentimes there's shame tied around these sorts of things and difficulty. And, and so I, I do want to say this, I always want to say this sort of thing when we talk about these kind of issues is, if you hear me say something that you think is like way off or offensive or, oh my goodness, come talk to me before you get upset, okay? Maybe I misspoke. Maybe I said something that I didn't mean to. Maybe I need to clarify. But is, are you with me on that? If there's something said that you're like, I can't believe he said that, come talk to me first. Don't, don't, don't get upset, okay? Um, last thing I'll say is uh, if this is something that you'd say, I kind of want to after tonight, maybe lean into this a little bit more, think about this more, whatever. Let me give you one um, person who is a good resource. Uh, he's an author. His name is David Instone Brewer. Instone Brewer was like a dash name, you know what I mean? Hyphenated. David Instone Brewer. If you want um, kind of much of what I'm going to be presenting here in a five-minute uh, uh almost cartoon YouTube video, <laughs> type in, he did this funny thing on YouTube, type in David Instone Brewer, um, what, what are those, uh, Playmobil, remember those little doll, little, little characters? And uh, someone just kind of created like a little five-minute presentation on here's the Bible's teaching about marriage and divorce and remarriage and all that sort of thing. So take a look at that sometime if you want. <clears throat> so Matthew 19, we're going to backfill. Um, marriage covenants. When we talk about covenants, what do we mean biblically here? Because I think that we, especially in America, I'll speak for myself, I tend to kind of theologize marriage, meaning um, romanticize, theologize. I kind of think about it as something really abstract. It's this beautiful abstract thing. I mean, I, I like that idea, right? Um, I, I don't tend to think of it, in fact, I have for years um, spoken very differently from a, a contract and a covenant, and they're really different things. And um, I've kind of been forced to realize biblically, they're not. <laughs> a covenant and a contract, even, even in uh, Old English, they come from the exact same word. And, and beyond that, um, in America, we don't use the word of covenant a whole lot. Or when we do, we don't think of it as something that has um, expectations, penalties associated with it. We tend to, in America, tend to think of a covenant as something that honorable people do, or they hold to it, right? You, you keep a covenant out of, out of honor, out of kind of being a, a good person. Maybe the, the only exception that I could think of anyway was um, we do still use the word covenant. It's tied to um, common interest uh, property development. If you live in a condo, if you live in a neighborhood, you probably have uh, covenants, conditions, and restrictions, right? CCNRs. <laughs> and you have a homeowners association <laughs> that will enforce those covenants. And that's probably the only... And see, you didn't sign up for the covenant. I mean, when you buy the property, you just assume it. It, 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 it has rights and it has um, expectations. And they, the covenant has to do with how can you use your property? Well, you can use it for this, you can use it for that. You can't hang your, hang your laundry outside to dry. You can't store things here. All those sorts 
of things. In the Old Testament, the word for covenant or contract, it's, it, there's just one word. It's berit. A berit is a contract, covenant, whatever, however you want to translate it. That's the only thing that there is. Um, Solomon, remember when he's going to have things built? He makes a berit uh, with Hiram to deliver wood. I need this much cedar brought in. And the berit would have expectations. You bring in this much cedar by this day, I pay you this amount. That very, very simple. That's what goes on. But there doesn't even necessarily have to be friendship involved in a berit, in a covenant, in a contract. Now, when we think about um, Jewish marriage contracts, because that's where this is being formed, and this is what's kind of giving us context here, um, a marriage contract is called a ketubah. A ketubah was a document which would be signed, and it laid out all of the expectations, all of the obligations, various, how much money each party is bringing into the marriage. Um, uh, if, if there's a divorce, how much money will go to the, the bride? Um, in fact, uh, typically what, what would happen is the man would agree to basically give her an amount of money, usually equated to like a year's salary. So he says, if I divorce you, um, or if I don't hold to my uh, obligations in here. I will give you this money. And the money didn't exist. It was like, if it happens, it's, the, it's sort of there, what would you say, hypothetically or something? It's like, I will pay that if it happens. And so it was very obviously important. But they just um, laid down all the details. Um, you know, back in Jesus' day, it would say, uh, the man will supply the money and the food. The woman will cook the food. The, the husband will either supply money or fabric. The woman will sew the fabric. Does that make sense? All the details, very detailed, of here's how we're going to do this marriage thing in this ketubah. Um, it's interesting, rabbis with this ketubah that they had, um, this has happened before throughout history, is um, when a rabbi would meet with a couple who's having a hard time, I think, this is a, I think we should do this here at Timberline Church. When a couple's having a hard time, he would meet with them and, you know, what's going on? We're arguing. Or, um, and, and so the rabbi could actually find them, not for himself, but he would say, okay, you know the ketubah money? Uh, let's say the husband doesn't share his bed with the wife for a week. That ketubah money just goes up. <laughs> the wife doesn't share her bed with the husband for a week. That ketubah money goes down. <laughs> so, motivation. When money's on the line, you will make your relationship work, I guess is the idea there. But in the ancient Near East, there was always a, a, a pretty significant upfront payment when a marriage contract happened. Maybe the most famous one. Do you, who do you think of? Someone who had to pay in, in his labor, anyway, <laughs> a lot of money before he could marry the girl that he wanted. Remember Jacob? Um, he, he has to work for seven years to, to get Rachel. Of course, he, then he gets the wrong one. He gets Leah, has to work another seven years. That's this big upfront payment that he has to make. And um, typically different parts of the, even in the Old Testament, different parts of the world, it's different. Sometimes the bride has to pay and her family. Sometimes the groom has to pay. And I've never really figured out why that is, but they've come up with their own um, reasons. Um, we still have to pay today. Do you realize there is a large gift, an exchange given? It's a ring. Historically, the groom gives the bride a large, expensive, beautiful ring, and it's what lawyers call a consideration. 
Without consideration, there's no contract is the idea. And again, it was, it, in the Western world, it used to be just the man would have to give the woman this consideration uh, because most of the wealth came from the man. Today, they exchange rings most of the time. Some cultures, in fact, it's terribly expensive. There's a lot of um, Asian, uh, Indian, really, cultures and African. The, the costs are so much, people can't get married because it's just exorbitant prices in those places. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, um, oftentimes, you know, we'll think, so women just had no rights. Um, they had no recourse, essentially their property. Well, in, in much of the ancient Near East, uh, that was the case. We, we have law codes like Hammurabi, which uh, speak of a woman being in that very respect. And so it puts women in a very difficult a place, because here's the thing is, if you get divorced, um, if your husband divorces you in the ancient Near Eastern world, um, any children you have, any uh, assets that you've, that all goes with him. You don't have access to your children because, you know, children are valuable. They can work the land, the uh, family business, or this was very common too, if a man would go away for a long period of time, you don't know if he's coming back. And in the ancient Near East, if you, oh, I think he's gone. If you go get married and you have children with that, when he comes back, he can reclaim you because you didn't have you know, the right to do that. And so he would reclaim you, but he would also reclaim any children that you had in this new marriage, any assets that you had gained. So as a result of that, guess what happened to a, to a divorced woman or a woman who's out there? Is any guy in his right mind <laughs> going to marry someone who could be reclaimed like that? Who any children you have with them could be reclaimed for this other man? Any assets that you might give her will be taken? Are you going to be emotionally invested in someone who you know can be taken away from you in just a second? No. That's why women in the ancient Near East were in a very precarious situation because it was very challenging. You were dependent upon your husband keeping you, because if he didn't, no hope, none, zero. That's why, and we're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, the law here about this very issue, it set like a gold standard in the ancient Near East. See here, and we'll read it in just a second, here, um, in a divorce, a woman is given something. This is unique. It was called a certificate of divorce. And at the bare minimum, what it always said, always had to say on this certificate of divorce, it's, it would say, you are now free to marry anyone you want. The reason that was so important, because again, otherwise that first man, he could come back anytime. He could reclaim her. So no other man is going to marry this person. And so Moses says here, it's for every single Jewish girl. Let's take a look at, um, read with me this passage right here that we, that we have up on the screen. Maybe as you were bored, you already read it here. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24, verses one through four. We read this, when a man takes a wife, now this is case law, okay? This isn't just giving a narrative of something that happened one day. This is case law. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, why is that? Because he has found some indecency. 
We'll talk about that in a second. In her, and he writes a certificate of divorce. And remember, that says you are now free to remarry. And puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And she departs out of the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, when you first read that, you sounds like, man, that's just, what a, you have so much negative in there, right? But here's what you have to realize. Case law, you always define what's the minimum requirement to get these rights. Does that make sense? Um, for these obligations to be met, what's the worst case scenario for this to happen? This is a multiple divorcee. I mean, this is a horrible wife. No husband likes her. Everything's bad. And you might think to yourself, you know, the first guy dismisses her because he finds something indecent about her. You would think, well, um, even this woman gets a certificate of divorce because she would have very low, low social status. I mean, she would be looked upon as just scum, basically. And the law is saying um, that the divorce certificate by law, even this woman gets it. And there was a, see, there's a pattern. The way the Old Testament lays laws down is it goes like this. What's the lowest common denominator for these rights to obtain? And then it, it means, well, if it's true for her, it must be true for the person who's socially above her and everyone else. Does that make sense? So for instance, um, Paul actually does this. In uh, 1 Timothy, uh, I can't remember the chapter, 1 Corinthians 9. Have you ever heard Paul say this? It's so weird. He's talking about uh, ministers and he's saying, we should pay ministers. Like, they should be able to get paid. And then he goes, I mean, don't forget, the Old Testament says, uh, never put a muzzle on the mouth of an ox which is treading grain. How many of you think that's a great argument for why we should pay ministers? I, I mean, we read there like, what are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? No, no, no. What's the lowest? Well, a mere ox who is working to tread the grain gets to eat some of it. And Paul goes, if that's true of an ox, go above that. Is it true of a hired hand, a worker? Well, of course, we should feed these hired hands and workers. If it's true of a hired hand and worker, is it true of the person? Yes. So should a minister who is working, should they get paid? Do you see it now? You lay the lowest common denominator, worst situation. This woman's been married 50 times and, you know, just awful. <laughs> Everyone hates her. She gets a certificate. Oh, okay. So are you with me here? This, this is the way Old Testament law works. And if you don't realize that, you just think like, man, this just every situation is horrible. No, no, no. They're putting in the bottom of the rung and saying, if it's true here, now start working your way up. You with me on that? Okay. So this is what's going on here. Um, essentially, this law, it's finding the most marginalized person out there that you could imagine. And it was probably a real case. You get the most marginalized person in the society, in Israelite society. And you say, if it's true of her, it's true of anyone who would be in a social rung above that person. Um, and so the language on that divorce certificate, again, minimum, at the minimum, it had to say this, is you are now free to marry anyone 
you wish. In fact, every we have tons of these divorce certificates. Um, at Masada, when um, many of the Jews took their lives because the Romans were attacking it, a lot of documents were found up there. The Judean uh, hills by Qumran, um, a lot of the documents. were found. Every single divorce certificate we have has this exact minimum language on there. You are now free to marry anyone you wish. Someone would say as long as it's a Jew. <laughs> so the reason for divorce in this passage, Deuteronomy, um, we mentioned this earlier, this, this phrase right here where it says found, um, can you see that one there? Some indecency in her. The, the, the way the rabbis, the way interpreters interpret that is, this is referring to adultery, okay? So it's saying, a, what is, according to Jewish law, what is a valid reason to, to dismiss your partner? It's the sexual indecency. It is divorce. So we have at least one reason, one valid biblical reason to get divorced. And it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And it's well known. Unfaithfulness is a possible reason. Um, the second passage from the Torah that gave shape to their understanding of what marriage was, what uh, divorce was, and remarriage, because that's always the question as well, is this one right here. This is Exodus chapter 21, and uh, verse 7 is where it starts. Um, let me just read it here. <clears throat> when a man sells his daughter as a slave, basically poor family indentured servitude, sells this woman as indentured. Remember, what, what's the law going to do? It's going to give the worst, most crummy situation you could imagine, okay? <laughs> when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed, that is, bought back. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, so this was a slave girl in the house, that he's saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you marry my son. Uh, he shall deal with her as a daughter. So now she's no longer hired hand. She has to be treated as a daughter in the family. If he takes another wife, so the son has married her, but now the son is, you know, this is polygamy. He takes a second wife. If he takes a second wife, he shall not diminish. What are the three things mentioned? Food, clothing, and her marital rights, probably meaning conjugal rights. He says, if he does, uh, if he does not do these three things for her, what? She's, she's. She can divorce. She can leave. It says, uh, she shall go out for nothing, no payment, meaning she doesn't have to, remember, because she's a daughter now. She's not a, she's not a, a slave girl <clears throat> in any respect anymore. So the first stipulation in the Torah for a divorce being valid is marital unfaithfulness, adultery. The other three reasons, and we're going to see this not just in this one place, this is going to be carried throughout, the other three reasons are neglecting, intentionally and ongoing neglecting a person's food, clothing, or uh, marital rights. Those are the uh, second reasons or the next three <clears throat> reasons there. Um, 
And so when we, we look at this, we tend to think this is some obscure passage that's like tucked away in some you know, part of the Bible that no one would know about or anything. But in the first century marriage covenants, again, we found those two. I mentioned Masada. We found tons of marriage uh, certificates there. Every single marriage certificate you will ever find from the first century world and even backwards quotes this, you must not diminish her food, clothing, marital rights. Every single one. It was written into every single contract. And every Jewish woman kept this like, like you think your social security card's important? Uh Uh-uh. This is the most important document you as a woman can possess because this is your ticket to freedom (laughs) if things go awry, severely awry. This is your ticket. This is what would allow you to leave because of this level of neglect of food, clothing, marital rights, or adultery. It would allow you to maintain that large sum of money that was given into the ketubah contract that you have. And so these were the most valuable documents that a woman could possess, the most valuable. And so the four obligations went both ways. And of course, here's how the rabbis would uh, reason, a little sexist, but they go, well, if it's true of women, remember, (laughs) if it's true of a woman that you get food, clothing, marital rights, um, and faithfulness, it's true of a man, because of course a man is above a woman in society, right? And so this was understood as, as, as a reciprocal thing, that both parties have expectations that, that uh, I bring home the food, you cook the food. I bring the, the clothing, you sew the clothing. You know what I mean? There's this reciprocal expectation in their understanding of us. In fact, it's interesting, even the prophets, you know, okay, you go later in Israel's history, um, Israel is spoken of as the bride, and God says, I'm your husband. I mean, all throughout. And, and, and how faithful is Israel to Yahweh? Horribly, right? I mean, awfully. Isn't faithful at all. And what's so interesting is the language that's used, let me just look at a couple different examples here. This is Isaiah chapter 50. He speaks of, I have given your mother, that means the nation, I have given you a certificate of divorce. Yahweh actually says to Israel through the prophets, I'm divorcing you. Um, Or we see uh, this is in Jeremiah 3, 6. It says, for all of the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And you, or even I'll scroll down a little bit to, uh, I think it's in here, or maybe it was, oh, it's Jeremiah. Let me go to the next one here. No. Oh yeah. Well, this is interesting. Does this sound familiar? We just read it a little bit. <clears throat> if a man divorces his wife, now this is speaking of Israel and, uh, and Yahweh. Okay. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not, uh, would not that lead to greatly, pollute, to, to greatly polluting the land? See, the prophet's big question is, how is God going to get remarried to Israel? Because we know Deuteronomy, once you send someone out and they become a wife of another, you can't go back to them. And we don't have time to go into the why of that. 
But the prophets are wrestling with this idea of how can Yahweh, how can God go back and reclaim Israel? Because he's divorced her. And so they're all kind of like wrestling with maybe he'll do it this way, maybe he'll do it that way. You remember this one, I think it was Jeremiah. He's told by God to take a stick and break it in half. And it represents, because remember the kingdom broke. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel's been divorced. God's divorced him, her. Um, and then keeps saying, you better watch out, Judah, or I will divorce you too. And so Jeremiah takes a stick and he goes, somehow, somehow God's going to reconnect these sticks. And there's all these questions and rest, and they all kind of process differently through that. But God says through the prophets, um, the prophet Ezekiel, you know what he says? He says, God said that he gave you food and you gave it to the idols. He said he gave you clothing and you clothed the idols. He gave you love and you became a harlot on every, tree, every hill under every tree. Those are the three things, right? Food, clothing, marital rights. So when God states, the reason I'm divorcing you, Israel, is he uses that picture of food, clothing, marital rights, and you've been unfaithful. You've broken all the bare minimum requirements. So this is... This is the Jewish understanding. It comes from Torah that marriage is this signing up this covenant, this contract, and at bare minimum, must do food, clothing, marital rights, and faithfulness to the people. And we read that God hates divorce. Of course, talk to any divorcee, they'll hate it as well. But this is one thing that is interesting. The Old Testament prophets paint God as a divorcee, a reluctant one, but they paint God as a divorcee. That's fascinating. Oftentimes, there are people who have been divorced and they, and they have this sense of shame, you know, the cause, whatever. I guess one, if, if that's you, one thing I would say is you serve a God who's a reluctant divorcee as well. So the Jewish understanding across the board was that marriage stayed together and it could not be broken unless someone broke a vow and one of those key four vows, then it could happen. <clears throat> so here's, here's kind of the point. Here's what we're getting to. If, if, if things were, were to go terribly wrong and one person refused to fulfill their vows, the point is there had to be a legitimate way out Interestingly, there's only one case in which there's no way out. <laughs> We're told that if a, if a man rapes a woman, then he has to marry her. If It's not compulsory. She doesn't have to. But he has to marry her, and he can never divorce her, and she can be awful to him the rest of his life, which I'm sure she would be, right? And there's nothing he can do about it. He just has, basically, he has to take care of her. I, is that the ideal world? No, but it's better than the other situations that a person might have. So we're going through time. The, the, the Jewish, this is, everyone who reads Torah knows the four reasons you can get divorced. Okay, right, what are they again? Neglect food, clothing, marital rights, and then unfaithfulness or adultery, okay? This is, this is a consistent view across the Jewish understanding, okay? We get to about 5 B.C., just a couple years before Jesus comes on the scene, just a couple. And there's this one rabbi, his name is Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel, he goes, he's reading this verse right here. 
okay? Because this is the one that, it, it's the adultery one, right? This is the adultery one. The Exodus 21 is the food, clothing, marital rights. And Hallel is reading this and he thinks he finds a loophole. Oh, wonderful, right? <laughs> As he's reading, he says, um, if she finds no favor in his eyes, um, then uh, because he has found some indecency. Um, there are two words, uh, ervat debar, that's translated. And uh, ervat is like, comes from the root word of nakedness. It's, it's some sort of a sexual thing, like uh, adultery. And then um, this, this other word, debar, means um, a thing. So it's probably like, uh, you could translate it um, indecency of a thing, if that makes sense. So it's saying like an indecent thing, right? Um, well, w- what he said was maybe, maybe these two words actually mean two, two different things. You can get divorced for an indecency, adultery, or a thing. Could be anything, <laughs> right? It's just a thing. Uh, you know, she didn't used to have those wrinkles around her eyes like she does now. That's a thing. You know, she burned the soup. Um, that's a thing, right? And so Hillel said, a man can divorce his wife for indecency, or a thing. <laughs> and, and so the language that they used was this idea of um, for any cause. That was sort of the mantra. If our mantra is let love live, the Hallel uh, mantra for valid divorce was for any cause. Yeah, okay, absolutely. You know, you get married for adultery or for any cause. It doesn't really matter. Now, there's a different rabbi named Shammai and this, this was like Republican and Democrat. It didn't matter what position Hillel took, Shammai's going to disagree. It doesn't matter what you know, position Hillel takes, you know, Shammai's going to disagree. I mean, they're just completely opposite. We actually have recorded 400 disagreements between Hillel and Shammai. <laughs> and so this becomes an enormous debate. And it actually opens the door to what we would call no-fault divorce. And if you think about it, it actually became something um, a lot easier to do. If you want to do a divorce normally, you know what you need? You need three rabbis. They're the lawyers. And you better pick your rabbis right. If you want the Hillel answer, you better get two Hillels and not two Shammai followers. You know what I'm saying? And it's a public hearing. Okay. Did you lack food, clothing, sex, unfaithfulness? What was it? And you've got to prove one of those. And it's not done privately. Your community's there. And if you lose, you don't get that big chunk of money. You know, remember that was going to wait like as the wife even. So there's even motivation for the wife to go, I'll do this no-fault divorce thing. At least I get the money. I don't get made a fool of. And it's just, you know, we got divorced for a thing, you know, at any cause kind of thing. It becomes so popular. Um, two uh, Jewish um, historians, Josephus and Philo, said that all of the divorces, they kind of made a universal statement, all the divorces that happen, happen at any cause. Because it's just, it's, it's easier, it's, but it's rampant. Um, do you remember Jesus' parents were going to get an uh, at-any-cause divorce? Remember? That's what it says. Joseph was going to do that. He found out Mary was pregnant, and he said he was going to put her away quietly. Out of kindness for her, he was going to do an at-any-cause divorce. Because he didn't want her publicly brought. This was rampant all over the place. Okay, so that's some of the context. Now, that leads us up to this passage. And all of that, if you keep that in your mind, will, I think, 
you'll, you'll have a radically different understanding of what Jesus is saying in this passage, given all of that. So Jesus is questioned um, about this great debate. Are you a Hillite or a Shemite? <laughs> does, does Deuteronomy 24, is it indecency of a thing or is it indecency and a thing? What is it, Jesus? This is, this is the debate. This is a huge debate. And everyone, everyone agrees with food, clothing, both schools, yeah. Food, clothing, um, marital love, yeah. Those are reasons. But what about this passage right here? So let's read. Let's see here. Okay. Uh, let me go back. We're going to go to that in a second. Okay, here's the passage. Teaching about a divorce, we read this. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and testing him by asking, listen, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? What's the phrase? For any cause. Are they saying, is it ever acceptable to get divorced? Are they asking that? No. What are they asking? They're asking about Deuteronomy 24. What's the correct interpretation? Is this no-fault divorce thing found in Deuteronomy 24? That's all they're asking. That's, they want to know where he falls on that. To, to be even more clear, so this is, this is Matthew's gospel. See how it says, uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This has stumped even more people. Go to Mark's version of it. Mark's earlier. Mark's writing years before. Look at the question that's asked. What's different? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, um, this question makes no sense if you know the Torah. Because what's the answer? Well, duh. Yeah, of course it's lawful. <laughs> Exodus 21, it's written on every single woman's Marital documents, of course it's lawful. It wouldn't make any sense. Let me see if I can give you an example. Um, and feel free to answer me. Uh, is it lawful for an 18-year-old to drink? If an 18-year-old doesn't drink, they'll die of dehydration. Oh, you knew what I was talking about. How did you know what I was talking about? I gave you no indication I was talking about alcohol. It wasn't in the sentence anywhere. How did you know that? Because we have a shared context. And in America, there's this ongoing long-term question about should 18-year-olds drink or should it be at 21, right? Like you, your brain filled in the gaps when I said, Can, is it lawful for an 18-year-old to drink? All of you, every single one of you, your brain's filled in the gaps, right? You knew what I meant, what I didn't mean, <laughs> right? That's what's going on here. Now, as a Westerner, I read this, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And it sounds like he, the answer is no. Like, I guess Jesus doesn't believe in divorce. Well, that, that, that question makes no sense unless you fill it in at any cause. Oh, he's referring to Deuteronomy 24. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so it's really, really clear. I mean, it's super clear. Like once you see that, you can't miss it. <laughs> Jesus is talking about one thing. He's not talking about everything. He's talking about a very specific, narrow 
situation. So what does Jesus do with the question? Let's go back to Matthew. Um, What does he do with the question? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Deuteronomy 24. And what's interesting is he doesn't answer him right away. He's like not interested in talking about divorce. (laughs) He gives him a lecture on marriage. Uh, he, he doesn't really say anything right away. I mean, this is his answer. Um, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, <clears throat> let not man separate. And then you're kind of like, yeah, 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 we, we, we know that. <laughs> but what about the at any cause thing? Like that's, I know we shouldn't get divorced, but, you know, can we it, on, under this condition over here? And they said to him, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses, now notice the word change that he makes here. They said, command, he said, allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of their heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so I say to you, at what context is he speaking about? Deuteronomy 24, whoever divorces his wife, except, Deuteronomy 24, except that, he's talking about that passage, uh, sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So do you see what he's answering and what he's not answering? It's very, very specific. And what's so fascinating in this, in this passage here, he, he goes through and he basically contradicts not scripture, but popular Jewish thinking. Uh, verses four through five, he contradicts polygamy, which was very, very popular. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One thing, it's uh, a, a Jewish person wouldn't miss this. You go back to Genesis, Jesus is adding a word here. The word two isn't in there, but he's being, the two shall become, he, he's making explicit what's implicit in the passage <clears throat> to here. He says in verse six, you shouldn't be getting divorced in the first place, where he says, so they are no longer one, uh, two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man <clears throat> separate. And then uh, in verse seven through eight, the, the common belief at the time was that if your spouse committed adultery, you had to get a divorce. It was like the decent thing to do. And yet in seven and eight, why does he say it here? He says, um, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and, and send him away? And he says, because your hearts are so hardened um, that, that he'll, it's, a, it's a concession. He allowed it. Mean, meaning even there, what's the ideal? Forgiveness, and recon- forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation. Even that is the ideal there. Uh, verse 12 later on, it's, we didn't read it, but it's, uh, scroll down. Verse 12 Um, he contradicts the popular Jewish idea that a a person had to be married. Because he says, some people be like, you know, they're just like the eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Um, According to the Jewish mind, the very first commandment in scripture is go forth and multiply. 
you have to be married. Like, you absolutely have to. And he's contradicting, saying, no, you don't have to. Is that the norm? Yes. But you don't have to in that way. And then finally, he comes down, and um, we see that he, he agrees with the Shamites. <laughs> he says, yes, it means Deuteronomy 24. It means an indecency. It's not and a thing, anything you want it to be. He's disagreeing with that. But you get the idea that Jesus does not like divorce. Jesus is saying, look, you're supposed to stay together forever. God is one of the witnesses at your wedding. Yeah, there are going to be some things that are not good about your marriage. Um, that There will be. But it's, it's only when there's the hardness of the heart that he says that's, that's the only time that divorce really takes place because there's hardness of heart and one or both people is unwilling to reconcile and to work toward that. And that's why God, Moses, allowed the certificate of divorce. But you don't get divorced for the small things is his point. So Jesus is keeping, he's about keeping marriages together, but he recognizes, he still recognizes, yeah, there are times when hardness of heart makes the only option divorce. So what about the adultery thing? Um, verse 10, we read, uh, let's see, here's a verse 10. Oh no, it's at the end of verse nine, sorry. <clears throat> this section right here where he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Remember, he's saying, if anyone gets divorced at any cause or for any cause and then gets remarried, it's adultery. Now, now you might think that be like, how is that adultery? Well, his point is it's not a valid divorce. You're still married to that person. So it's committing adultery. And this takes us, again, this is like super fast. I wish we could spend more time just for the sake of time we can't, but I do want to jump to because this always goes in people's minds is um, what about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7? What's interesting, if, if you look at the first part that I've highlighted there, um, Paul has in mind Deuteronomy 21 in this passage. Look what he says. The husband should, not, uh, sh should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Oh yeah, that was, that was Exodus 21. And likewise, the wife to her husband. And then he goes through and talks about what, what are all the expectations? You have obligations. You have obligations to your spouse. And then in verse uh, 15, he says um, at the very bottom there, uh, he, he's giving examples. If, if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, which is a believer, is not enslaved or bound. He uses the word doulos, meaning like you're, you're, there's an expectation that that's, you can't be married again. And his whole point is saying, if a person leaves you, they're doing uh, Exodus 21. They're neglecting you through food, clothing, marital rights. That's, that's leaving, that's desertion. So Paul doesn't make up his own thing here. Because a lot of times people look at, Jesus says you can only get married for unfaithfulness. Paul says you can only get married if someone leaves you. Well, I guess it's one on one. We got two reasons. <laughs> no, they're talking about the Old Testament law. They're, 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 that's their mooring is what did God reveal about marriage and divorce and remarriage? And so he allows for remarriage 
if there's a valid reason for divorce. And then in verse uh, 10, he speaks of, uh, this is probably an actual case that he's writing to and about. This is a Christian wife and a Christian husband. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce the wife. So this assumes that this is probably one of those any cause divorces that's happened. (laughs) And what he's saying is, um, because it's an any cause divorce, and because these people are faithful followers of Jesus and will be obedient to Torah, I'm instructing you, you need to work toward reconciliation. And so she can't get remarried. And he's assuming because she's a believer, she's going to be obedient to the words of Scripture. So just kind of as sort of summarizing some of these points here, Jesus didn't say remarriage wasn't allowed with a proper divorce. That's not taught by Paul. It's not taught by Jesus. He said remarriage was not allowed with an improper divorce, one of these any cause divorces. And again, our problem oftentimes is that when we read this, we don't, we don't know the legal terminology. Um, and so we think he's, he's disallowing all divorces and therefore God says no to all remarriages. And that's just not the case in scripture. And again, there are so many questions that, that linger in people's mind. I was talking to someone just last week and they were telling me about their daughter who's in this kind of abusive situation. They say, ah, but you know, they can't. And an abusive situation is so far down the road of neglect of food, clothing, and marital rights. It's so far down the road. It probably should have stopped a long time prior to that. But it falls into that category of neglecting. And so as we, as we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how do I apply scripture, that's why God has given us the community of other believers, that we have conversations. We go out to eat and talk about, hey, how's your marriage doing? What's going on? What are your struggles? Right now? What are the things that are... We're given the body of Christ for a very specific reason, to look at scripture, to apply it to our lives, for encouragement to each other when there's very difficult times. And this is the most important thing, especially if, you know, at at some point you're at that place where you're kind of making decisions about your marriage. God knows your heart. If, if, If you're trying to force something, if you're trying to find, if you're a Hallel loophole kind of person, God knows your heart. <laughs> don't, don't think he doesn't. But again, come to the place where we have communion and community with each other. And, you know, part of your story, I, I know you're going to touch a lot of you. The reason why we invest in things like um, divorce care here at church, grief share, is because we go, we're all broken. No one's perfect. Everyone's accepted, but we all have places of brokenness. And we need to be careful that as we think about oftentimes people who who have been divorced are sort of almost thought of like it's the unforgivable sin. (laughs) The rest of your life, you're just living in sin. There's something called contrition and God gives forgiveness in place of it. God forgives all the decisions that we make. And again, he knows our hearts. And what I want us to do is move to a time now where we do this every week. We take communion. And to me, it's, it's a beautiful picture of God who's a divorcee, 
who would go to any lengths to reclaim his bride. And the fact that we have been invited into that, grafted into it is the language that Paul uses sometimes. And then you say, you're the object of his love. He loves you so, so much. He would go to this length. He would, he would die. And in the person of Jesus, he has. So over these next couple minutes, um, band's gonna play a song. Go to one of the stations around the room, uh, allergen freeze in the back. Grab the elements, just hold them. Go back to your seat. Engage in worship, participate. And then at the end of the song, we'll, we'll all take it together. Could you stand with me if you're able to? We do this in response. You know, those words we were just singing, I was thinking about, it says, I, I give you all of myself. And of course, we do that in response to him withholding nothing and giving all of himself to us. And this is a picture of that, pouring out his blood, his body broken for us on the cross. And that's what we celebrate. We proclaim his death in the past. We look forward to the future consummation of the kingdom fully here, new creation. And so we take this both with a rear view, looking back at his sacrifice and a forward view at new creation. So let's take the bread, his body broken for us. And his blood shed in a new covenant. Amen. Heavenly Father, would you go with us this evening into the rest of our week? And God, may we be reminded this week of your great love for us, that you have pursued us despite our lack of faithfulness and that you have found a way to reach us who are so lost and you have made a people who were not your people, your people. And you call us your bride and we love you for that, God. Help us to live in that identity this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen, amen. Guys, thanks for being here tonight. I always enjoy being with you. So we'll see you next week. Have a great weekend.